Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, you're listening to the latest episode of Talking France, a weekly podcast by The Local in which we shed some light on the news, talking points and cultural features of France. In this week's show, we'll run through the main subjects of the week, including ministers under threat of losing their jobs, forest fires and summer strikes that could hit your holiday plans. Apart from the parliamentary elections, the big subject this week in France has been the heatwave. French cities are probably the worst places to be when the thermometer rises towards 40 degrees Celsius and with the climate crisis, they're only going to get hotter in the summers to come. So we'll explore what the French government and local authorities are doing to keep them cool. We'll also look at France's biggest local and regional rivalries, one of which revolves around a meaty stew. And we'll bring you three things you really need to know about France's autoroute, which will likely be very, very busy this year. And as always, we'll look ahead to what's coming up. Joining me will be editor Emma Pearson and journalist Jen Mansfield. I'm your host, Ben McPartland. Hi, Emma. Hi, Jen. Good to have you with us again on Talking France. Everything okay? Hi, Ben. Doing great. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. I'm interested to hear what this week's talking points are. Let's get straight on. What are we talking about in France this week, Emma? It feels very familiar subject. Yeah, we're talking about strikes, a good perennial topic for France. But this time we're specifically talking about airline strikes because already ahead of the sort of summer getaway, we've had several strike notices and also a bit of the sort of public grumbling that can lead to strike action later on. It's quite centred at the moment on airports, on air travel. So staff who were employed by Aéroport de Paris, which covers both Charles de Gaulle and all the airports, but not Beauvais. They've announced that there's going to be a walkout on July 1st. This is airport employees, so it's like uh, security staff, check-in staff, people who are working in the airport itself. They already staged a one-day strike a couple of weeks ago that led to a quarter of all departures being cancelled from Charles de Gaulle, but it seems like this one might be a bit bigger because there are now more unions involved in that. Separately, we've also got flight attendants who were employed by Ryanair at Toulouse, Marseille and Paris airports. They've called for unlimited strike action all summer, although that will be on specific days, but we just don't know which days it will be yet. It'll probably be the the busy days though, like the school break-up weekend and the Bastille Day weekend. And we've also got the French pilots who are employed by EasyJet have written to the company CEO denouncing the chaos that's already happened on the airline this summer. They're not actually threatening strike action, but they're clearly not very happy, so that could develop into something else. We've kind of already mentioned on this podcast, of course, that airports around France and around Europe, in fact, have all got these staff problems that kind of relate to the pandemic. And the unions say this is putting quite a lot of pressure on the staff who are there. So it seems like it's not a very happy ship. June, July is is usually strike season, especially airports in France. We haven't really had it in the last couple of years due to COVID. But, you know, I remember this time of year, every year, the Air France unions pilots would be on strike. But 
This is not just an issue in France at the moment, the strikes at airports. No, obviously, um, usually France is the uh, is the naughty child of Europe when it comes to strikes. And as you say, it does happen fairly regularly. But actually this year, we've already seen some quite major strikes in Germany and Sweden. So France is actually not the worst at the moment. OK, so anyone taking a plane via France or in France this summer really needs to keep an eye on the news. Keep an eye on our website. We'll be on top of everything. Is there any good news out there for airline passengers? There's not great news out there for airline passengers. I have to say, but there is some good news and I don't want to tempt fate here, but it does seem like there are no problems on French trains and the rail unions have not given any indication that there'll be a strike action. So if you have a choice, I'd say maybe taking the train might be the better bet this summer. Yeah, I'm hearing from a lot of people who were uh, taking the train around Europe this summer to avoid flying. Jen, let's move on to who we're talking about in France this week. Now we're in the middle of the two rounds of the parliamentary elections. The results from the first round, we'll hear from a bit more from Emma shortly uh, to see if we can interpret them. They're very confusing. Second round is on Sunday, but there are a few names in the press this week in France. Now, we're talking about two or three of Macron's ministers who are kind of, it's squeaky bum time for them this week because they're in danger of losing their jobs. Jen, who are they and why might they be out of jobs? Yes. So, like you mentioned, there are three ministers that are currently running in the legislatives and they might lose their ministerial positions because they might lose their deputy elections. Basically, all three of them are up against La Noops candidates. All three are running in the Paris region and it doesn't really look good for any of them. The first is Clément Bonne. He's probably the most famous of the three. He's kind of known as Macron's protégé and he's the minister delegate in charge of Europe. He's running in Paris and he came in second to a La Noops candidate who happens to be a lawyer for LGBT rights. Um, and yeah, it's not looking great for him. The next up is Stanislas Guerini. He's running in Paris's 18th arrondissement. He's running for re-election, actually, but he also came in second against a La Noops candidate. And he's kind of a, a Macron insider. He helped him found En Marche. So we're going to see what's going to come next for Guerini. And he's the Minister of Public Transformation and Service. That's right? Exactly. OK, and there's one more candidate who is a little nervous this week. Yes, and her name is Amélie de Montchalant. She's one of the environment ministers. She's the Minister of Ecological transition. She's running in Essonne. And yeah, it's been kind of a bitter campaign for her to keep her role. Between her and the La Noops candidate, Jérôme Gouedge, it's not looking great. So we're probably going to see at least one of these ministers, if not all three of them, uh, lose their positions. So that might mean we're heading for a remaniement, which is a cabinet reshuffle. Interesting. Emma, there was one name that you targeted. This is a, someone who's perhaps going to disappear from the news, or at least you hope. Well, yeah, I mean, it might be the last time we ever have to talk about Eric Zemmour, who is the TV pundit turned extreme right politician. You'll probably remember him from the presidential elections. He stood then, he scored 7.1%, not great. He's running and he's put some candidates from his own party forward in the parliamentary elections and he's done much worse. His share of the vote's gone down to 4.2%. Zemmour himself and all of the candidates for his party were knocked out in the first round of voting. So it's a pretty humiliating result for him. And you might remember that just a few months ago this is the guy who some of the British and the American press were really bigging up as the sort of the future of the far right in Europe a potential president of France he's not the president and this week he's looking like a pretty big loser he is indeed pretty embarrassing performance in the first round for Eric Zemmour just fill us in then on you know the second round is on Sunday we know the results of the first round it was kind of neck and neck between Macron's coalition and the left coalition what's going to happen on Sunday what's the likely outcome come here? Do we know? Well, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty close, as you said. Coup de coude, as they say in France, neck and neck. It seems likely that Macron's uh, centrist alliance ensemble will win the largest number of seats in the parliament, but 
what? Macron needs 289 seats, a minimum of 289 seats, to get an overall majority in the parliament. And the polls at the moment are kind of predicting that he'll get somewhere between 265 and 300 seats. So he might get an overall majority, he might not. If he doesn't get an overall majority, it seems likely that he'll try to form some kind of alliance involving the MPs from Les Républicains, the centre-right party, and probably some independent MPs as well. But it might be a pretty messy coalition that he manages to sort of cobble together, or he might even end up having to try to form alliances on a vote-by-vote basis. So it's likely that all that will be pretty messy and distracting. Okay, and we'll find out on Sunday. And anyone eager to know the results can visit our website shortly after 8pm, where Emma will be on top of things, uploading the results and all the analysis you need. Finally, where are we talking about in France this week? We're talking about the Garde Departement in Occitanie. Jen, why are we talking about the Garde Departement? Well, we're talking about it because actually, you may not know this, France is among Europe's top five countries impacted by wildfires. And earlier this week, there were a spate of wildfires that happened in the Garde Departement. One of them actually ended up at one of Europe's largest campgrounds, and it meant that over 500 people had to be evacuated. But thankfully, no one was seriously injured or killed. But that did end up meaning that 60 dwellings, they were new dwellings at the campsite, were destroyed. So this is just a reminder that wildfire season is coming up. Firefighters are warning us that this year is going to be a particular powder keg with the heat and the dry atmosphere. So it's definitely something to look out for. Mm, Okay. And what about generally across France? Where are the worst areas for wildfires? So most of the wildfires happen in the south of the country, which isn't super surprising. In 2021, a huge wildfire happened in the Var region, uh, which is not too far from the French Riviera. Most of them are in the Provence-Alpes-Côte d'Azur region. There are also a lot in Corsica. Um, We've seen that in the news these last few years. But basically, if you're going camping or you're going hiking in the south of France, it's definitely worth being aware of potential ways that you could contribute to a wildfire. Most of them are man-made. So definitely don't put out your cigarette on the ground in a forest. (laughs) Indeed. Thanks for that, Jen and Emma. France is in the grip of its first real canicule or heatwave of the year, with the mercury rising towards 40 degrees Celsius in parts of the south. With the climate crisis meaning rising global temperatures, we're only going to see more of these canicules in the year to come. People living on France's coastline will have more chance to keep cool with a dip in the sea, always a possibility. But what about the millions living in French cities? Jen, you've been looking into this for us this week. Are those of us living in cities doomed to suffer the ever-worsening sweltering heat in summers, or is the government going to do anything to help? So the French government has been taking heat waves pretty seriously, actually, since 2003, when over 15,000 people died during a heat wave. And there are some new steps. The older steps mostly were focused on protecting vulnerable people, like the elderly. But if you're like me and you, and you live in a large city in France, you've probably noticed that it's way hotter inside the city than it is as soon as you had out into the countryside. And that's because of these urban heat islands, which is basically what makes the city hotter than it is in the suburbs. And the government is trying to do something about that specifically. So they've recently announced a 500 million euro plan that's going to help regreen cities um, and create islands of coolness or îlots de fraîcheur, because right now they're îlots de chaleur, which is islands of hotness. <laughs> and a 2015 law actually required all the rooftops on new buildings built in commercial zones in France to be covered by plants or 
or at least partially covered by plants or have solar plant panels. So the government is taking some steps, but this is going to be all the more important for cities because they are getting hotter and hotter every year. So basically by greening cities, by making, you know, parts of cities greener, planting plants and trees, this will help keep temperatures down in the summer. Yes, definitely. Um, And there is a bit of a difference actually here between cities in the north and cities in, in the south of the country. So in the south, cities traditionally are more equipped to handle the hot temperatures because, you know, it's just hotter there. What with shutters and light colored buildings and winding narrow streets that you can find shade in, actually in Nice, that might be one of the best places to go to stay cool because the city's old town was built for the heat. So they actually have these, like, it's interesting, they actually have these natural air conditioners that pump the cool air from the bottom of the street into the buildings. But unfortunately, even with these traditional heat protectors, the severity of the heat is going to become so intense uh, in southern French cities that they're going to need to adapt. So, for example, Marseille is going to try to create more space in between buildings because Marseille is pretty tightly packed. That's going to hopefully allow for more air to circulate, you know, like you said, planting more trees. But in the north, the issue is that these cities, they were never adapted for this kind of heat. Take Paris, for example. The city is really densely populated. It's home to a lot of these big heat-sucking boulevards, lots of historic landmarks. So that kind of slows down the process for construction projects. And it notoriously lacks green space. And on top of that, in Paris specifically, you may have noticed that the roofs are kind of all made out of this zinc material. And that's great in the winter when you want to keep the heat in. But in the summer, it makes it way more unbearable to be inside of a Parisian apartment. Okay, now the heat in Paris hasn't been too bad this week for me anyway. We've had some horrendous heat waves in recent years. I remember just walking out the office here and it was literally like walking into a kind of oven or having just a hairdryer blown in your face. But are you saying... On the one hand, I'm probably in the middle of a heat wave. In a way, I'm better off going to Marseille than staying in Paris. Well, sort of. So, like I mentioned, in the south, the architecture is more equipped to handle the heat because it's traditionally hotter there. But because heat waves are becoming more intense, more frequent, and the temperatures are getting higher and higher and they're more erratic... It's still going to be super hot to be in Marseille in the summer, but Paris isn't equipped for it and neither are the northern cities. So, yeah, I mean, you could be cooler in a in the old city of Nice than you might be in, say, a Grand Boulevard in Paris. Yeah, OK, so let's focus on Paris for a moment. This is kind of where I suffer every summer, where loads of people suffer every summer. You see people walking around with fans over their shoulder, like you go down to Dati, they're just empty of fans. Is Paris doing anything besides planting trees or bike lanes? Yeah, so Paris... It does have some specific challenges ahead of it, like we mentioned, but they are doing some specific things to bring the temperature down. So, for example, Paris is actually planting grass along the tramways. So that's going to cover up the concrete and that's going to take a little bit of the heat out. Um, And then the other thing that Paris is doing is they're going to add solar panels into Bois de Vincennes. What they're going to do with that is they're also going to add shading areas. And then another thing, like I mentioned before, is that the zinc rooftops, they're actually quite, they make it quite hot inside of Parisian apartments. And so right now they're studying ways to make these zinc rooftops either reflective or adding vegetation to them without necessarily changing the traditional architecture of the city that's such a big part of its identity. Really interesting, Jen. Now, Emma, I've just mentioned fans. You've been talking about fans all week, really, and the importance of getting one. Have you got yours? I have got my fan. In fact, last year I treated myself to a a new fan. It's got 11 speeds. So like sometimes I like to just stand in front of it, turn it up to 11 and sing Bonnie Tyler songs and pretend I'm in some kind of 80s music video with 
my hair blowing back. It's like, you know, fun activities for Paris for a heatwave. We need to get a clip of that on the podcast. Why would you need 11 speeds on a fan in Paris? Because uh, it's really, really hot in Paris. And as Jen said, the uh, the city itself is just not adapted. Okay. I mean, when I lived in the southwest, the buildings are very different. They've got big, thick walls. The streets are very narrow, so they're always in the shade. Paris is just not used to these kind of temperatures, but it's going to have to get used to them. Now, apart from buying an 11 speed fan, the French government, as Jen said, does take heat waves, canicule, very seriously and issues kind of official advice every time one comes around. Can you just run us through some of this advice just for, for listeners? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the top one really is shut the shutters. I always think this seems a bit counterintuitive for people like me who grew up in Northern Europe in buildings that don't have shutters. But during the day, keep the windows shut, keep the shutters shut, shut out all the heat and then just open open them up in the evening when it's a bit cooler and let some breeze into your room. The sort of official government advice, some of it is quite obvious, you know, drink plenty of water, stay in the shade, don't exercise in the middle of the day. But they also say you should eat regular meals. And just, you know, one place that doesn't really have heat waves or somewhere where we can go to escape heat waves in France, anywhere in particular? Well, the country, really. Get out of the city, uh, go to some of the big lakes. Um, what most French towns do have, because it's a big country and a lot of people are a long way away from the sea, is a lot of towns have a sort of a lake where they've built a, a beach. So you can kind of go there and paddle on the beach, swim in the lake, and that's a nice, cool place to go in the summer. Or just head to Normandy or Brittany, perhaps. Head to Brittany where it might be raining, yeah. (laughs) On the coast. Thanks, guys. Really interesting stuff. Now, each week, we ask our readers to send in questions that we will try and answer. And we've had a great one this week about France's biggest regional rivalries. Where are they? Why do they exist? Emma and Jen, you're going to help fill us in here. Fire away. Well, for sporting rivalries, you really don't have to look any further than Paris-Marseille football rivalry. France's two biggest football teams are undoubtedly Paris Saint-Germain and Olympique Marseille, and their fans are fierce rivals. I was at the uh, PSG club shop at Parc de Prince a couple of years ago, and I noticed that roughly half the scarves on sale have messages of support for Paris, and the other half are all about how much they hate Marseille. If you want, you could buy a scarf that says Notre haine envers l'eau. Our hatred towards Olympique Marseille lasts forever, so they're pretty passionate about it. And interestingly, the fans themselves are not at all confined to just those two cities. They're both teams have fans all over the country. In fact, one of Marseille's most famous fans is Emmanuel Macron, despite him being born and raised up in Amiens, which is probably about as far away as you can get from Marseille and still be in France. Now, this rivalry on the football pitch, you know, is undoubted, but it goes way beyond football between Paris and Marseille, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the two cities are kind of right rivals on everything really they're the country's two biggest cities and they have a very deep rivalry that's about it's about identity it's about history it's about political power it's about money funding and so much more than that but to very briefly condense it the Marseillais think that the Parisians are rude snobbish elites who hoard all the money and political power and starve the provinces Parisians on the other hand think that Marseillais are lazy corrupt gangsters who have ridiculous accents obviously neither of those things are completely true there are some lovely people in both cities although it is fair to say the Marseille accent is quite tricky for outsiders very tricky indeed yeah do you know any other football rivalries in France guys <laughs> Don't follow me. No, nothing, no. right. Okay, well, Saint Etienne versus Lyon in central eastern France is a huge one. They don't even allow fans of either team to travel to the other stadium when they play each other. Uh, Saint-Étienne's a kind of big industrial city. Lyon's this beautiful city. They are very jealous of each other, or at least one is of the other. Goes back into history a long time, that one. FC Lens versus Lille, the big north rivalry up in northern France. Often just sees chaos on and off the pitch. And in the west, can you guess? Nantes and... 
Ren, Ren come on. Bit of, Two big cities bit over of in Brittany the West, rivalry. Yeah. <laughs> Very big rivalry over there in the West, yeah. Okay, Jen, uh, speaking of, of Brittany and Normandy, that's another regional rivalry in France. Yeah, it is. And so Brittany and Normandy, they actually have a super long-running rivalry. It goes all the way back to the period when these two regions in France had separate dukedoms, and they weren't part of France at all. And it emerges in all sorts of different areas. Uh, So from the territorial and boundary disputes to whether or not you should drink your cider out of a bowl or a glass. In Brittany, it's a round bowl known as a bolet. I remember going to Brittany for the first time, and I saw all these Breton flags flying everywhere. And that's because Breton is it has its own regional language. It has a political independence movement. And it's just very, uh, it's a it's a part of France that has a very strong identity. And it's also quite expansionist. And so there's kind of been this long running campaign for the town of Nantes to actually leave the Pays de la Loire region and become part of Brittany, <laughs> which it historically was actually. And then there's also a referendum on Nexit for next year. Um, for those of you who are wondering about whether or not Nantes will become a part of Brittany. When it comes to Brittany and Normandy, there is one tourist attraction that really is they're still arguing over this whether it's in Brittany or Normandy Jen yes so this is the tourist attraction that my mom is always mad at me for not having visited yet because I've visited Brittany many times or actually it's in Normandy uh, and it's of course Mont Saint-Michel so yes like I said it's actually in Normandy though every household that I visited in Brittany has a picture of Mont Saint-Michel and it's actually it's only a matter of meters from the border so it's been passed back and forth between these two regions over time and actually the border has moved and one of the standing theories is that it's because the river the Cuesnon, which hopefully I pronounced correctly, has supposedly changed course, and that's the border between the two regions, and so that's kind of the theory as to why Mont Saint-Michel has flipped back and forth between Normandy and and Brittany. So over the course of history, this land has been fought over, there have been actual battles on the island, and in 2018, the Breton flag was actually sneakily flown over the island, uh, which led to a lot of uh, protests from some furious Normans. Indeed. I learned this week that Brittany has its own version of Calvados. Do you guys know the name? Yeah, this is, uh, I don't know how you say it though, because it's in Breton. Is it Lambig? Lambig, yeah. yeah. I didn't realise that. Obviously, it's, they're both made from distilling cider, but Calvados has kind of become world famous. I don't know what happened to Lambig, but it obviously hasn't had as much success as Calvados in Normandy. Uh, although Brittany does make a lot of whiskies. And on the subject of drink and cuisine, there is another rivalry in France, Emma, that is all about stew. <laughs> yeah, Cassoulet specifically. So Cassoulet is a very southwest thing, but three different towns in the southwest of France claim to have invented Cassoulet. Cassoulet, I mean, you say it's southwest thing, just what is it exactly? Because it really, to me, it doesn't sound like anything worth fighting over. Oh, what is delicious? You're mad. It's it is stew, as you uh, as you say. It always involves slow cooked white beans and sausages and some form of meat, and you cook it for like a day and a half, and you get this lovely, very very hearty warming stew. It's really for the winter. You do find places that serve it in the summer, but they're mostly tourist places, so I would avoid and stick to it as a winter thing. But it's the the question of the meat is the the key question, basically. Three towns, Toulouse, Carcassonne and Castelnaudary, all claim to have invented this dish and they all have slightly different recipes and it centres on whether it's duck, goose or pork that's the main ingredient out of these. Frankly, all of them are gorgeous, definitely try it. But I think out of these three, probably Castelnaudary uh, takes its battle most seriously. It has a, uh, a Grand Confraternité du Cassoulet, a Cassoulet Brotherhood. They stage a Fête du Cassoulet every year where members of the Brotherhood dress up in these long, brightly coloured robes and a special 
special hat. They parade through the town and they even have a song. It's called the uh, the Anthem of Castanodary Cassile. And we've got a little clip of that song we're going to play to you right now. Let's have a listen. Fantastic. Some great insight into the regional rivalries around France. And just a reminder to listeners, please feel free to send in your questions to us and we'll try to answer them about anything France and French. Send them into news at the local.fr. Each week we explore an aspect of France or French culture that we think listeners really should know more about. We've looked at the Académie Française, the Fête de la Musique, and this week it's roads. Well, autoroute. France has over 140 motorways or freeways known as autoroutes, stretching over 9,000 kilometres in total. This summer, they will be as busy as ever as people head off on holiday to all corners of France. Whether it's speed limits or how much they cost to drive on, here are three things to know about autoroute in France. Emma, start us off. They're owned by private companies, which I always think is a bit of a surprise in a country where a lot of the services and the utilities are state-owned. But France's motorways or highways, known as autoroutes, are run by private companies. This involvement of private companies kind of began from about the 1990s, but then in 1995 the government passed a law that allowed motorway construction by what they call Société d'économie mixte, which is kind of like a public-private partnership between private companies and the government. And what this did was it allowed a sort of rapid expansion of the autoroute network by getting these private companies involved. And there's about a dozen different companies now who build the roads but also maintain them. And since 2002, the French state has been sort of gradually lessening its involvement in autoroutes, so they're really in the hands of these private companies now. Uh Now, I love a good French autoroute. I've actually got a favourite one. Any guesses, guys? I don't drive, so I don't know. (laughs) It is the A75 that links Clermont-Ferrand to Béziers. It goes through the heart of central southern France. The scenery is spectacular. You really have to keep your eyes on the road, but you get to go across the Milau viaduct above the Tarn Valley. Absolutely spectacular. You run through the regional national parks, Grand Cause and Aubrac. It is fantastic. I also love the A16 from Paris to Calais. Oh, I like that because it got the... the, um, Yeah, all of the bridges have the different sculptures of the different sports. So like on one bridge, you've got a guy playing tennis and on the next bridge, you've got like a horse jumping over it. They're really cool. Yeah, yeah, they're really good bridges. Uh, The worst one for me is the A1 and the A26 towards Calais. It's full of trucks. Horrible to drive on. Yeah, definitely. And like the the A10, it's like it's fine, but in the summer, it's where all of the Parisians head on to when they're heading south. So it's pretty busy. It goes down to Bordeaux, that one. Yeah, absolutely heaving in the summer. Okay. Now you mentioned toll fees, Emma. These can be quite steep. Like, how are these prices set? Well, we sort of mentioned that the government is backing out of involvement, but they do still have control over the toll prices, and they set limits every year on how much they can be increased by. And it's usually like sort of a maximum of one to two percent increase every. Year. Year, but it's still increased every year and I mean there are some places where they they've seen a rise of about 30% since 2000. Because of all these different companies there isn't like a standardised fee so it depends where you're driving and also obviously how long you're driving on that section of auto route 4 but I mean if you were coming from Calais all the way down to the south coast you'd be looking at 70-80 euro in uh, in payage fees so they do add quite significantly to your journey cost. There's one journey I think I, I think it's the A13 that goes out of Paris or maybe the A14 you literally have to stop every couple of miles and you pay two euros euros you go again you pay another two euros it's like infuriating it's like there's just toll after toll it's like i don't mind paying the big amount at the end but it's like when you have to stop every couple of miles and pay a couple of euros on your credit card is there any 
quicker ways to get through these tolls? Well, there is something called telepayage. You might have seen it uh, at the payage, at the toll booths, uh, some cars just go straight through. And that's because they've bought telepayage, which is basically a prepay thing. You pay fees in advance and you get a little uh, dangly thing that you dangle off your driver's mirror. Uh, the cameras kind of automatically read that, so you just pass straight through. Whether it's actually financially worth it kind of depends on how far you're going and how frequently you do the journeys. But it is quite handy, particularly for people who've come over from the UK, because obviously the payment machines are on the left. And if you're on a right hand drive car and if you haven't got a passenger, that can involve quite a lot of ungainly scrabbling across the front of your car and over your handbrake. Now, as you can imagine, drivers get caught speeding on French auto routes all the time. Often, you know, some for stretches, you know, you can be the only car on the road, depending on the time of year, of course. But I always find it strange that so many drivers get caught speeding because the for me, the speed limit is quite high, especially compared to the UK. Anyway, tell us about speed limits on French auto routes. Final point. Well, they do exist, unlike Germany next door, uh, which has no speed limits on the autobahn. France does have a limit and they're actually variable. So in good weather, the limit is 130 kilometres per hour, which is roughly 80 miles an hour if you're in imperial measurements. But in bad weather, it's 110 kilometres an hour, although obviously always drive to, uh, to the conditions. You can get stopped for, for speeding on the motorway. As you mentioned, the police occasionally do checks on the auto routes, although it's a lot more common to get random police checks on smaller roads. And it's not the only rule for driving on French auto routes, is it? Plenty of other stuff that drivers need to be aware of. There's all sorts, yeah. I mean, for driving anywhere in France, you need to have your kit, which is you need to have a red warning triangle and a high-vis yellow vest in case of a breakdown. But the law that required everybody to carry a little breathalyzer kit, that has actually been scrapped now. So um, you just need your small kit. If you do break down on the auto route, you should pull over to the hard shoulder, set up your warning triangle if it's safe to do so, slip on your yellow vest so you're visible, if possible stand behind the safety barrier, and then you should call for help. But the best way to do this is to use the emergency phones that are by the side of the road because that connects you directly to the breakdown services and it also means they know where you are, which obviously if you're calling from mobile is more difficult. There is a, a fee for breakdown, they'll come and get you, they'll fix your car on the side of the road if it's possible or they'll tow it if not. The fees are capped by the government and they're not extortionate but one thing we should mention is that if you run out of petrol that's your own fault, you're an idiot you don't get the government capped fee and you have to pay the full charge so try not to run out of fuel. I think I did once. Thanks for calling me an idiot, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the service stations are quite a long way apart. They, they can are, be up to 100 to... kilometres apart, so you really don't want to wait until your fuel light is flashing. Yeah, it's true. They list how far they're apart, actually, every so often. you really got to take note of it. OK, thanks for that. That's three things to know about French auto routes. Take care if you're driving on them this summer. And finally, on today's podcast, to wrap things up, we're just going to have a brief look ahead to what's coming up in France. Emma, start us off. Well, we've got the second round of the elections, as we uh, as we talked about before. As we mentioned last week, we've got the Fête de la Musique, which is on Tuesday. That's really fun. And then the day after that, the summer sales start. Sales in France are tightly regulated, so you only get a few weeks of the year to grab a bargain, and they start on Wednesday. So we've got the second round of the elections on Sunday, Fête de la Musique on Tuesday, June 21st, and the sales start on the Wednesday. Okay, a lot going on next week. And Jen, any more? Yes. So actually this weekend, if you haven't bought a gift for your dad, you should get him one because Father's Day is on Sunday, June 19th. And then also for those of us that are American and are celebrating Juneteenth, uh, that's also this Sunday. And if you're interested in participating in celebrations in France, you can go to Democrats Abroad's website. They've got an event coming up and you can sign up for that. 
Fantastic. And if you want to keep a check on what's going on in France each week, we publish an agenda each Monday morning where you can get a rundown of all the big events in France over the coming week at the local.fr. And that wraps things up for this week's episode. Thank you to all of you for listening. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Jen. And we'll be with you for next week's episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.